comics, especially comics that were not uh, having any kind of clout or brand recognition behind them, wasn't easy getting that into newsstands. It was almost impossible to get them back into those places because of the fact that they had just such a bad taste in their mouth for what had transpired in the 90s. And we did really well in that spot, which is great. Blaming the customer is one of the worst things I think that any business can really do because once you start blaming them for your, for your faults, Oh man, it is difficult to come back from that. It's a good time to be an independent creator and I think it couldn't come at any better time. It's a fun book, I like it. I, I call King Cryptid my seven foot two, 400 pound baby. Oh, you could even say, uh, maybe we're extraterrestrials. Maybe, uh, I mean, we're extraterrestrials to somebody, <laughs> hell. Hello and welcome to Culturescape, the show that interviews the geek creators and influencers who built nerd culture. Today I have with me the sleek green Power Ranger with a plan to fix the comic book industry. He is Peter Samedi, the founder and publisher of Alternate Comics. He offers high quality creator owned comics and graphic novels at affordable prices with the innovation of using newsprint instead of just glossy paper. He's also the writer and creator of the award-winning King Cryptid series, a thrilling adventure that features legendary creatures and mysteries. He also has seen his work adapted to film, and he hosts its own show on YouTube with Comic Book Radio. In today's episode, we will dive into Peter's journey as a comic book creator and publisher, how he came up with the idea of using newsprint, and what challenges and opportunities he faces in the current market. We will discuss the state and future of nerd culture, and maybe some cryptozoology topics like whether Bigfoot or, or Nessie are real or not, and why, in my opinion, the jackalope is the best creature ever. So today, it's going to be a fun one. Without further ado, Peter Samedi. Hey, how's it going? Thank you for having me. Two things, though. Uh, newsprint as an innovation is a strange way to put that. I would say more it's a throwback to what, uh, what comic books used to be for decades upon decades. And then King Cryptid is not. It, it's a fan it's loved by the fans, but it hasn't won any awards. So I just want to let people know. It it should it should win awards because it's excellent. It's up there. It's one of the it's one of the better comics that's in this space. You know that I think Cyberfrog is another one where it's like it's in this uh, independent greater space with uh, quality titles that are by authors that seem to put a lot of work into it. And I, I like it. Plus, I just like that kind of stuff. I, you know, and this is something the Alterna does so well, is you guys do a lot of short story fiction, which I'm a huge fan of. That's what I've been listening to old radio and reading old short stories by like Ray Bradbury. So all that kind of stuff is right up my alley. Appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah. So you're, you're kind of a younger guy. I think you're like, you're just like a few years older than me. So tell us a little bit How about- How old your... do you think I am? I want to put you on the spot. <laughs> 39. Oh, you nailed it. Ah. You son of <laughs> a gun. Oh. You nailed it. I'm going to be 40 on July 4th. The big 4-0. It happens to yeah. us all. It's fun. I'm looking forward to it. 40 years around the sun. Good stuff. Yeah. Uh, so let, let's jump into what is your origin story? How did you find yourself working into comics? Because I was, I was just thinking about this. If you were jumping in, like, I'll turn it as like, what, 2006? So, I mean, you you were like early 20s, probably, right? Yeah, 22. Yeah, I was 22 when uh, I started Alterna. 21 when uh, the idea was conceived and 22 when it was incorporated. 
and uh, it's been a, a crazy 18 years. It really has a lot of ups and downs and, and all kinds of fun stuff. So how did you get into uh, comics? Like, what did you read as a kid or what led you to think, oh, I can do this professionally? Uh, comic books were always around. I mean, uh, my mom kind of worked near a convenience store and she'd bring some home every now and then. And I had cousins that were older than me. They were always giving me their toys or their comics that they just didn't want anymore. And uh, I got into a lot of comics that were slightly before my time because of that. So some of my favorites as a kid was Spider-Man. I loved Batman, Superman, loved the X-Men. Uh, when I got around to buying my own comics, that was that was a, a whole other experience to go into a comic shop for the first time. And uh, I remember picking out the first comic I could remember anyway, picking out to buy uh, after getting familiar with some of the other characters. It was this Silver Surfer comic. Uh, I believe it was Silver Surfer 50. And it had a uh, an embossed cover on it. It was from the second volume. And it was like a, a silver embossed cover and Thanos was in the issue. And uh, I, I just thought it was the coolest thing I ever saw. And uh, after that, I started kind of um, picking up trading cards, like the comic book trading cards that they had come out. Because if I had maybe a dollar or two to spend, it was tough sometime knowing what comic to get. And the trading cards were so great because of the fact that you could get to learn a lot about the comics, the characters. And then uh, as a kid, I was able to make a more informed buying decision. So after learning all the different characters and things like that and the ones that spoke to me, I went to the shop and I would pick out a comic or two that uh, were from some of the characters that I had seen in those cards. And, and those things were great. It just was such an awesome time to be a fan. And that was probably around, I'd say, the, the early 90s, like 91 or so was when I was doing this. And um, the thing that's funny is that with comics, for me, they always went hand in hand with what I loved about uh, the unknown and the paranormal and the things that were just uh, uh, unexplainable and impossible. So that kind of went hand in hand with me loving things like cryptids and UFOs and aliens and all kinds of different stuff like that. Uh, I always taken up like time life books from the library as a kid about Bigfoot and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. It just, to me, the comics were like an extension of that. I think I was drawn to these things that were so fantastical and seemed to be uh, impossible, yet they they were possible. And it, it got my imagination going, and, and I've never looked back. There were some really fantastic uh, trading card games in the early 90s for, like, properties. I think Marvel had one. Uh, there was one for Star Wars. I think even Lord of the Rings, like, you were, you were right. They were just, the art was usually pretty high quality and they had like a little lore blurb on it and yeah it does kind of suck you in it made you like oh you know i want to learn more about uh i remember thinking of one like spider woman who is this character there's a there's another character besides spider-man really and so yeah i know what you mean yeah yeah i mean these weren't these weren't like card games these these were and marvel did have a card game i think it was called overpower i think that came out in like 95 or so if i remember correctly 95 or 96 and these were like uh, just straight up regular trading cards with like stats and power levels, and and they had different things too. Like Marvel had Marvel had really good trading cards, like Marvel masterpieces. That was like Joe Jusko's art on there, painted cards, and then uh, all the trivia and the bio about the characters. And then they would even dive into some of the issues specifically in some of these sets, talking about what happened in the issues and different pivotal moments. 
you know, like uh, now we go, oh, spoiler, spoiler for everything. But uh, back then, it's like you just dove right into these card sets and they were giving away left and right what was occurring within the set, uh, what was in the, uh, the the comic series. And the spoiler was just, that wasn't even a thing. It was more just like, look, here's what's happening in their life. Here are the events that have transpired and getting to either discover them for the first time or if you were a reader for a long time, getting kind of like a refresher. Um, I feel it was a great way, looking back, especially to get people into the comics. I think so many people did get into the comics because of those trading cards. It's a shame that even though they have some of those now, it's not like it was before. Like you, you could get a pack. I think it was like twelve cards or something in a pack. The pack was like a dollar or two. Now it's like you get like four cards maybe in a pack, and the pack's like five to eight dollars. It's 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 all crazy uh we even have some of the cards at alterna now uh, that we do inspired by these let me show uh some of these so we even have some of these here where like here's the king cryptid card and then we got like the power levels and things like that and then we've got a card for this character called baron rat and he's a mischievous guy and and on the back of it he like scrawls all over his <laughs> card here puts his power levels up to the max so That's it's awesome. like we have fun with it too. And then the background, they all kind of connect and make like a, a forming image in the back of it. Uh, but those were inspired by some of those cards from from back in the early 90s. They did such a great job. It was so much fun. So what led you to thinking that you wanted though to like, to not just be a reader, but a, a creator? W what was the switch for young Peter? I think it always went hand in hand with me because the more I would read the comics and learn about the characters through the cards and whatnot, the more I would design my own and make my own characters. And I always wanted to end up one day maybe working for one of those companies. And I didn't really care to like give my take on a character that already existed because to me, they were, they were real. You know, I knew they weren't real necessarily, but they were as real as, as one of those characters could be, where they had a specific kind of personality, a specific history. They were who they were, uh, and that was it. So I, I like that about them, and I like them being that way, but I wanted to invent characters to be with them. So as I started going down that path as a kid and just come up with my own characters that would kind of exist within the worlds of these pre-existing characters, uh, it got more and more towards uh, me just kind of creating my own worlds and my own characters and at first i did want to go down that road but when marvel had gone um bankrupt essentially i believe around 96 um with with a variety of things that were going on in the industry at that time it, it kind of made me uh, even at 12 years old go i don't know if i want to or can do this anymore maybe there's not a future in comics so i kind of went away from comics for a little bit after that uh, the comics i thought in quality had noticeably diminished and um, I still read and loved like some of the older ones that I could find here and there, but it seemed like the industry was really turning. So I thought maybe I'll still just do something creatively in, in graphic design or, or some kind of periphery of the comic book industry. Uh, and then around, I'd say probably by the time I was going to college, uh, around 2000 to 2002, uh, I got back into comics again and really started learning more about the independent scene in comics. And thought, well, maybe I can kind of go that path instead. Yeah, the, the history of comic, the 90s, was such a big change for it. I, I'm just old enough to remember, you know, I was uh, eight or nine, 
you know, there's like a, there was like a Shopco like and a Kmart like within six blocks of where uh, we lived. And so, you know, sometimes I could just, you know, go down the street, go to Shopco and there, you know, on a little spindle rack were comics. And I think I bought a lot of like Archie with like Sonic. I know I'm a giant weeb. And, uh, and then all of a sudden one day they were gone. And you could have, you was like, where'd they go? No, no one has it. Where'd it go? And I, I little young Peter, you know, I, I didn't even know what to, I was like, what is the, what happened? But it's yeah. so weird. That's how it used to be. Comics used to be like affordable and available. It was just like something you picked up, you know, like you get a candy bar or your, your gossip rag, you know? Oh, well, and years a... later, um, fast forward uh, a bit to 2017 when we came out with the newsprint line. Uh, I started learning that when we went to go to newsstand, especially that, that, that abrupt in some places, almost overnight kind of leaving of the newsstand, uh, was still fresh in many retailers' minds. Um, it wasn't an easy task trying to get comics, especially comics that were not, uh, having any kind of clout or brand recognition behind them wasn't easy getting that into newsstands and then they were really leery about it and they didn't really have much sales um to kind of compare to uh, comics were still in newsstand in some capacity at that point in time in like barnes and noble and books a million but in terms of like outside of that uh at places like the grocery store or just a convenience store or any other kind of store that would have had a spinner rack back in the day it was almost impossible to get them back into those places because of the fact that they had just such a bad taste in their mouth for what had transpired in the 90s. And they just kind of abandoned the idea of putting comics back into the stores. It was really interesting when we were in the newsstand and we had purchased uh, a promotional placement at the registers of Toys R Us, the top 200 Toys R Us stores, right before they had closed. And this was in the holiday time. And uh, they, talking to a Toys R Us rep, were actually really happy about the fact that they were getting in all ages comics uh, back into these stores at the register because they had such a difficult time getting comics that they felt were appropriate enough to put at the register that were both going to be interesting and were truly all ages, not just um, like our all ages comics, even though they were kid appropriate, they weren't necessarily aimed solely at kids. We had a lot of adults enjoying them as well. And they were really taken back by that and they really liked it and um they said because the the whole industry felt like it was getting too um focused on adults and the comics were getting too dark so they didn't really feel too comfortable putting those at the register but they thought that our comics that we had offered it was like four or five of them at the time that those titles were really great and it reminded them a lot of the kinds of comics that were essentially all ages uh, years prior um, and we did really well in that spot, which was great. Uh, but unfortunately for Toys R Us, uh, and, and also in some way for us too, they ended up going under a few months after that. And uh, we, we still have customers, though, with us since that uh, that promotional placement, which is great. But it's it's tough. It's it's a it's a crazy industry. The newsstand, especially, it's difficult because it's a, it's full returnability. There's no accountability. It's a very strange system at this point. And we were discovering that um, essentially back in the day, they used to rip the covers off or do something to give you a proof of life. Here's here's the thing that we're not going to sell it anymore, even though there are a lot of stories about them still kind of selling the comics ripped off covers. 
but it got even worse. When we were in there, uh, we were noticing that we would get returns in the negatives. So if we sent them like 3,000, we would eventually show up in return sheets as they totaled maybe eight months into it. You'd see returns going to like 3,021, 3,030. Uh, and I'm like, how is that possible? How are we getting returns in the negative? We only sent them a certain amount. Yeah, that's how could weird. they report back in the negative? Uh, which means that they're reporting back more returns than what they even had registered as being received. And I was finding out that they were the people who were working at these places were scanning. They scanned the barcodes on the covers now. Um, and then that's how they registered what was being returned. So in many cases, what was happening was like, let's say there's a certain title and then let's say you gave them 10 and now maybe three sold well they would scan three that the, the three that were there and then they would essentially scan the the rest of them that had sold off so you would get these return numbers all skewed and then sometimes they would also not scan the, the proper title so if you had titles that were maybe like a, a dollar or two or three more than a certain one and they misscan it and they just kind of scanned them all, thinking they were all worth the same amount. You could end up selling more of a certain title, but maybe your returns showed that you got more returns in for the expensive book. So after two years of insanity with that and seeing that it was uh, not not a good system for us, we got out of that. And uh, it's I've had my frustrations with Diamond over the years, but Diamond, I do have to say, was uh, the best distributor that we worked with. And, uh, and I'm not exactly going to be like touting Diamond because we had a lot of problems with them, but they were better than Newsstand and they were better than dealing with the book distribution system too. Uh, so it's, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting conversation, the, the distribution system in comics. It's, uh, it's kind of all over the place and there's a lot, there's a lot to be said for it and there's also a lot that, that should be spoken up about it. Yeah, I find that so interesting about Alternate because you guys have tried looking up basically every avenue to try to sell your books. I know you said it's kind of weird to call going back to newsprint as innovation, but for those who um, aren't regular comic book readers, uh, there was a flip um, in the production of comic books that they were going to use a higher quality standard of paper, but at a higher cost. And so then that was part of, of course, with inflation, the price of a comic book went up and up. Um, and you even on your website, you could go to Alternative Comics right now on your website. You can buy single issues for, uh, you know, two bucks in some sense. If I go to a comic book store, I'm usually if I'm lucky, I'm paying for something for a single issue, sometimes seven something. Uh, it, can, it can add up, you know, and it's a big difference for a consumer because it's like an add on versus, you know, I, it used to be like uh, my friend Neon over at Clownfish TV says, you know, when he was a kid, he could just go pick up the entire line of Marvel for the month and he, you know, he could do it just with his uh, lawn mowing money, but that just isn't the case anymore. And it, it's like, like so many of the problems of comics, like you were also referring to here, it's like comic books went from a model where the comics would be where the people were at to now we're going to require people to go out to get the comics. And I mean, uh, not to bring, make this religious or anything, but I mean, that's kind of like church, you know, that's kind of the problem there. It's like, you kind of have to get the people, they kind of have to want to be there. It, it's a little harder. You know, that's just my experience, though. But well, yeah, it's it's kind of like anything in in business. Um, you, you need the three A's. You need affordability, accessibility, and availability. And and comics are at this point in time, I think, striking out on all three. And it's unfortunate because they don't need to. But 
I don't think there's a way to go back. Um, a, a big part of what Newsstand did for them, even though it must have been a frustrating system, seeing like you send a million out and maybe you sold 300,000. Uh, a part of what it did, other than put comics in as many places as, as was possible, was that it also allowed the uh, availability of ad revenue to be there. To say, look, we have this many in circulation, and then also they sold through other avenues as well, a lot of direct avenues as well. With uh, anyone can remember taking out like a comic book subscription and have them shipped to your house. They did that for a long time, um, so they had a lot of ad revenue that they could have generated, which which also helped to keep the cost lower. Uh, because in some cases, especially with these publications, uh, a lot of the time you can get ad revenue right in there and not sell a single issue but it, the ad revenue paid for the production of the issue and not just the printing, but the actual production of the issue, the art and the writing and everything. Um, so when your circulation numbers dry up, you can't really boast that to a potential advertiser that this is the potential amount of eyes that could be seen on this product, uh, on this advertisement. And this is why that advertisement is worth what it's worth. Uh, so now when you leave that space and you do that, that's going to hit your your bottom line in terms of how much that product is going to be able to generate in revenue. Then the other thing that hit is because when, once they went to kind of like the direct market and it became like, oh, we're kind of printing our own money and the direct market being the, the comic shops, with no returnability. And once it goes off to the shop, the retailer, it's their problem now. And that was the mindset that slowly took over with the publishers. I hate when they say the collector bubble burst, right? It's kind of like this thing that um, it started training people within the industry to blame the customer. That, oh, the customer just doesn't want to buy a caseload of worthless crap anymore. You know, what's wrong with them? Uh, oh, that's it, a good point. Is, and instead, it's like, no, no, the publisher gimmicks were ridiculous. And the customer started to wise up. So, of course, you eventually had this kind of bottleneck situation take place where the customers would stop buying cases of crap just because you put collector edition on it or whatever it was. And they would eventually go, you know what? I don't think this is going to be worth anything. And in some cases, it wasn't worth anything very quickly. Um, so y you had like this secondary market that eventually dried up completely. And then it kind of took, like, think about it like the momentum of a car trying to stop. It's the same thing that occurs here where the funnel system of the, the supply chain, you have a dead stop with the customer. They don't really buy anymore. But the retailer's orders are months out. The publisher's line is even more than that. So you have this whole momentum that's like, here's the stopping point, but the retailer is stopping here. And then the publisher is stopping even further because their stuff is already all the way planned back. So you have this whole thing which just gets accordioned up and crunched. And that's what led to the publisher gimmick bubble burst, not the collector bubble burst. Uh, blaming the customer is one of the worst things I think that any business can really do because once you start blaming them for your for your faults, uh, man, it is difficult to come back from that. It also is it says that you don't take the onus upon yourself to own the mistake that you made. And if you never understand that you made a mistake to begin with, you're going to repeat those mistakes. So we saw a lot of that happen with the comic industry in the 90s. And it's unfortunate that it did occur that way because what happened was you see all these things, all these gimmicks, all these different lines, all these products kind of spawning out. And what happens is that then you're also distilling your product. So before you had the idea of here's maybe three or four 
titles of a certain character. Let's say, I don't know, when I was a kid, I was reading Amazing Spider-Man, Web of Spider-Man, Spectacular Spider-Man, and Adjectiveless Spider-Man. So he had like four main titles. Mm -hmm. Now you're looking at in the 90s, you had this, that, and the other thing all over the place, miniseries here and there. It's a lot like what's happening today. Uh, now you have a, 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 your product is getting diminished across the board. There's so many avenues of readership and it's confusing and convoluted in terms of the continuity. But on top of that, what occurs is there is a, a loss of community. And what I mean by that is the fact that think if there was just one Spider-Man title. Now, if there's one Spider-Man title being put out, let's say even twice a week, you're still putting out just as many books, but you put out one Spider-Man twi title twice a week, you have your creative teams on there the same way you would have done it before. Now, all of a sudden, that one Spider-Man title is maybe selling one to two million a month, and you have one to two million a month of people reading one title, all talking about what's going on in that one specific title. Think about it in the same way if you have a TV show. If you have a TV show going on, and there's 20 of that TV show and all these spinoffs running around at the same time, you're, gonna, you're not going to have that kind of communal feeling of people all kind of talking about the same thing, being on the same page of what was going on, and having this kind of zeitgeist throughout the whole entire atmosphere of it. You're going to have people all over the place that they watch maybe this one and that one and the other one, and then it's going to feel very disjointed. So there's going to be this whole thing just completely spread thin. So when the publishing lines were kind of taking advantage of this and they were doing this and spreading the characters too thin and the storylines too thin, all of a sudden now you have the, and, and all thinking that like, we just put these out and the customers will buy them. Why wouldn't they? They love this character. Why wouldn't they buy everything? Well, you know, aside from not having enough money, maybe there's just not enough time. You need time to read them. You need time to know what they're about. If you're going to talk about them, if you're going to be invested. So now if you don't have the time anymore, and now you become a cover collector and you don't read the books anymore. You just kind of keeping up with the Joneses in terms of this character. Now you don't even really know what's going on with the book anymore and the character. And that connection that was there is now going to be lost. And so that's happened over the course of, you know, the publishers trained the readers to do this for a real long time. And now you have what we have today which is kind of repeating the same mistakes that happened 20 to four, 20 to 30 years ago. So it's a shame. It doesn't need to be this way, but it is this way. And it's, it's unfortunate. Oh, I mean, the, so many, you had so many good insights there. Unfortunately, unfortunately, I think you're largely correct. I mean, in uh, the last decade, it definitely feels like the customer has gone the, the, at least from the media, but it seems like the companies are happy to go along. It looks like the customer gets most of the blame for the problems of the comic book industry. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's kind of been happening a, a lot with many different industries lately, is that it feels like if something doesn't work out, the customer is blamed. Um, you know, they're, they're this, that, the other thing, if they didn't support a certain product. But yet, meanwhile, they can support something that is literally what you're accusing them of being. And then they're not given credit of like, oh, all of a sudden they're no longer that. They're no longer this, that, or the other thing, or hateful, or whatever it is. Uh, you know, they they came out in support of this one, but we're not gonna we're not gonna kind of pump the brakes a bit and and go, wait a second, maybe maybe they just really like this one and they just didn't like that other one, and, and maybe it's because it just wasn't as good as that one, or maybe we didn't market it effectively, or maybe uh, uh, one of a hundred different things. No, instead it's it's just it's the customer's fault, and and that's the thing that's so. Uh, unfortunate about it but but right now i think we're seeing with comics we're seeing uh, a, a rise again of 
the independent and we kind of see things come in waves of 25 to 30 years so generationally we're seeing this kind of i don't know i don't want to call it like a golden age but we're seeing uh like a new age of, of independent creation something that was akin to what it felt like with the excitement of when image was formed and uh, then 30 years prior to Image being formed, you saw like the formation of, of Marvel Comics really coming into its own. And, and they, for all intents and purposes, were kind of like an independent company at that point in time because they just were a handful of people for the most part. And, and even getting uh, National, which was DC at the time, to, to print their comics for them. Uh, so, you know, every 30 or so years, we're noticing cycles in comics. And I think we're seeing another wave about to begin or or it already has begun at least and it's a it's a good time to be an independent creator and i think it couldn't come at any better time because we are seeing so many different weird things coming out in the corporate side of the industry yeah i love the new ultimate spider-man books it's like please don't leave me we can still do this i will we'll be better <laughs> we promise they are. I have to admit, they are actually decent. I I have enjoyed them, but there is a there is a there's just a a scent of desperation about them. Yeah. Well, I, I can't say that uh, that I'm reading that current line, but I hope you know if uh, if they're if they're getting it at, at at all in terms of what's been happening and what's going on. I mean, hopefully they they stay that course. So, do you think the industry? I guess this is one of the big questions. Do you think it's going to be a, a boutique item? You're you're one of the people that's really worked hard and has really devoted your energies to try to bring it more to the mainstream uh, market. Uh, but it seems like the energy, at least I see online from the independency, it seems like these are these are higher these are higher cost uh, price entry point comics. You know, they're like thirty dollars to support on a Kickstarter. Um, and you know they come with all the 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 nice uh, swish gadgets and everything else, the little add-ons you can get, and, which is great. But obviously they're working towards a smaller user base. And I mean I like all these things. I think what Eric July is real doing is really interesting, EVS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But but that isn't that isn't really like that isn't really growing the pie necessarily. That's just like better monetization of said pie. So do you think comics at all could could widen again is is that possible and if not why do you think it is it's just people have been like you were saying just so untrained out of it we just can't go back um well you know i i want to definitely say that that what what they're doing and what so many others are doing as well is incredible um it's unbelievably impressive i think there there's an entrepreneurial system behind that that if we look at it and compare it with the 70 to 80 or so years of, of other companies that have come before them and have, have established characters and brands, I, I think it's kind of uh, unfair to do it. Not saying that you were doing that, but I've seen people do that. And I think what they're doing, uh, what we're doing, what so many others are doing, lots of creators out there are doing this, is they're recognizing that the system is broken beyond repair. And it is. The system is absolutely and utterly broken. It'll, it'll work for certain people and for most, it won't work at all. And to get any kind of success, you have to realize you have to step outside of that system. You have to create a separate system and that takes time and it eventually, hopefully, maybe it catches on. I think there's a way uh, to look at it where it's not necessarily about you have to purposefully go out there and grow the system. 
but you have to stand within it long enough to survive the new system you're creating. Uh, it's, it's a war of attrition. So if you can kind of wait it out, in essence, while having success and grow by doing the things that you know need to be done, then depending on how many of those things you're doing and how frequently and how consistently, you'll notice your growth is either uh, skyrocketing, stagnating, or declining. Uh, but I think that overall, we're seeing a lot of people that are getting tired of certain things within the corporate side of it and are going more and more towards the independent, going more towards crowdfunded. Uh, people that would suggest, well, it needs to be in a brick and mortar store because a brick and mortar store is where it's got to be. Uh, Amazon's one of the biggest, if not the biggest retailer on the planet, and that's online primarily. Uh, then you're talking about there's a lot of things within the brick and mortar stores. Sometimes it feels like the most difficult place on earth to sell a comic book uh, is at a comic book shop. And what I mean by that is talking to retailers over the years. Uh, it's incredibly difficult sometimes, even if you have a very quality book. I mean, we've had books that were on the New York Times bestsellers list. We've had books that were uh, getting national press coverage. We had books that were being turned into film. Uh, and it was still incredibly difficult to convince a retailer, look, just put one copy on the shelf. You know, even local stores to be like, let's let's help each other promote. You know, you're local, I'm local. Let's get together and let's, let's, let's promote each other. And even then, sometimes it'd be very difficult to get something going. Uh, the, 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 the glances and the conversations sometime with retailers, you'd think that you were trying to sell them uh, something else completely different outside of their scope of product with, with the way that the tone could kind of be. Uh, so I think that the rise of crowdfunding, all of a sudden you get the fact that customers for the longest time, many of them don't have comic shops near them anymore. Uh, many of them love comics, but it's difficult to find any that they would like. Uh, and then on top of it, the, the comic industry isn't really that great when it comes to having online availability. I think the best comic shop on the planet for online is probably eBay. Uh, other than that, you can get Midtown, you can get TFAW, you can get a couple of these other ones, but it's not as comprehensive as it could be or maybe should be. So uh, combined with all of that, creates the perfect storm for the independent creator to come in, take advantage of what's going on with crowdfunding. And then eventually even, or at the same time, like what we're doing at Alterna, have their own store, their own site, and then you can build up merch, you can build up a back issue catalog, all these other kinds of things. So I think right now we're seeing, we're seeing the start of something that is really difficult to pinpoint exactly how it's gonna go and, and maybe how far it'll go. Uh, but in terms of the growth of readers and things like that, I think, I think that there's tremendous potential for it. I think it's all there. It just depends on uh, the avenues in which we, we choose to explore. And I think there's some people there that are doing a fantastic job. And first and foremost, uh, people that are making comics have to understand you got to worry about how you're going to succeed, not about how the industry succeeds, not about how someone else succeeds, not about how to grow the readership of, of comics or whatever it is. If you don't worry about putting the oxygen mask on first, you're going to die and you can't help anybody else out. Uh, a, a lot of the publishers, they view it as like the comics are secondary to everything else. And it's not even like, okay, there's the movies and then there's the comics. It's like, well, there's the movies, there's the show, there's the games, there's the, the wrapping paper, there's the action figure, there's all the other... There's <laughs> the comics right there. On the spreadsheet. You know, there's the comic. 
And instead, it should be the other way around. It should be, here's the convicts, first and foremost, the best, the best thing ever, because that's where everything comes from. And then everything else spawns from that. Um, it's a nice, uh, it's a nice kind of like beautiful rain cloud. And then everything else from the comics rain cloud is falling down and creating all these wonderful plants and, and life underneath it. But instead it's viewed as like, oh yeah, that the, the comics. Yeah. Yeah. Those things. Yeah. Those things that like, I guess no one wants anymore. And because they treat it that way, because that's the attitude, it's kind of like a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I think we're seeing the same kind of spreading too thin with the ancillary media at this point too so we're seeing like the movies and the shows are starting to feel like homework it's starting to get really spread it's starting to kind of reboot constantly it's starting to and then they're facing the mortality of the the actors themselves uh you know i'm sure that they'll eventually work in ai to a point where they don't need to worry about that factor anymore uh which breeds a whole other host of problems um but we're seeing so many different things, all these different mistakes that they've made. Instead of all the strengths of comics, we're seeing all of the, the, the weaknesses being amplified across the board lately. And I think that's so unfortunate because there was a time where you can really say, look at all, look at, look at everything that's going on. We had like in, in the 90s, especially. 80s were really strong too. And the 70s had their own strengths as well. But the 90s had uh, a tremendously strong uh, comic market at that point. Uh, really strong ancillary media with figures and cards and, and merch, uh, and then very strong television shows in terms of like Batman, the animated series, you had the DC and Marvel universes, X-Men, Spider-Man, all of that. And it was giving birth to a lot of really strong independent source material as well. I mean, we can't lo overlook Ninja Turtles and what Ninja Turtles was doing in the 80s into the 90s. So you had all these different things. But now it feels like uh, the companies are are very big and very insecure. They're not comic companies anymore. Uh, they haven't been comic companies solely for a long time in terms of the big two, at least. And so now they're looking at like, well, what 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 do we do to make sure that we don't have any competitors where it's going to start hitting us where it counts? And well, you know, we can't have them growing at the comic store. So we need to make sure we kind of sort of strong arm what the retailer is ordering by forcing a whole lot of crap down their throat. So they have to make the decision of, well, do I order from here or do I order from there? And if I don't order from the independent, that means I got to order and put on the shelf something that I know of because at least people will go, okay, well, I know that character. I know that company. And that's the thought process with so many of them when I've talked to them over the years where I'm like, but you, you just told me that you think that book looks like crap and you don't think it's going to sell. And they're like, yeah, you know, yours looks great. But at the same time, people people know what that company is or they've heard of that character or they don't really know your company and your character. I was like, are you aware that at one point in time, no one knew what the hell that was either? You know, and the reason that they did is because it went onto a shelf. But at that point in time, it was a different system. There wasn't a direct market system. It was a newsstand system and they pretty much just got what they got and they put it out there. So now what's, see, what's happening at the direct market with retailers is putting them in a bad place. And it's forcing their hand in terms of what they are going to support on the shelf. And then I'm talking to retailers where they go, well, we want something that will kind of more or less sell itself. I said, well, you got to be careful what you wish for with that, because the more you stock product that's just going to sell itself. Now, I understand product that's going to sell where you can recommend it. It looks good and it appeals to your customers. But if it's going to sell itself, What's going to happen is that eventually that vendor is going to realize it sells itself and they're going to stop giving away the 62 to 65% to retail and distribution. They're going to set up their own distribution. They're going to set up their own retail. 
and then you're out of the equation because they don't need the middleman anymore because the product sells itself. So it, it's it's a really odd case right now where I think retailers would really benefit from store organization of, of genre, maybe supporting local as long as the local supports them as well. And then also, and having sections for that. And then also maybe even talking and seeing if they can get crowdfunded books that are already done and made and approach a crowdfunding creator after a campaign, of course, after fulfillment and say, hey, could you cut me a deal? You know, maybe half off or whatever and I can get your books into my store. Um, is that a little more work? Yes, but it's a business. Um, and this is what you have to do to, to maintain and to grow that business. And then that's how I think everyone will start succeeding if everyone starts kind of leveraging their strengths. But right now it feels like everyone is, is really concerned with their piece of pie and like nibbling on it as, as little as they can. Instead of going, guys, we can, we can make another pie. We can, just, we can make more pie. You don't have to just, this is the one slice I have. I got to nibble on it for forever. Um, you know, and instead of, of thinking, oh, well, we could all make another pie together. Uh, unfortunately, it's a, it's a very kind of, this is my little thing and, and that's the way it's going to be. And, and that mindset is, is, is a frightening one in terms of the larger scope of the retail, direct market, corporate, mainstream. So I think a lot of indie creators out there see that or have dealt with it firsthand. And they're viewing it as, well, you know, I'm going to make my own thing over here. You guys keep doing whatever it is you're doing. And I'm going to do what I can do best here with my own little, you know, my own little thing. No matter no matter what you want to call it, it's fine. Uh, but but that's what's going to that's what's going to be OK for me. And I think we see a lot of people doing that, which is great. And I think that's the way to continue doing it. It is monstrous how. The big two, especially, have they have, as they have watched over the last decade, uh, the comic book retailers, um, as they've been basically drowning, they've just thrown more of the problems of the industry um, onto them. They just they just keep they just keep shoveling it on the comic book shops and, and the comic book shops. I mean, it's like every day a few are dropping. I mean, it, it's it's dreadful out there, just dreadful, and it it's like. It feels like you know that the 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 comic book industry, at least with the big two, they're just so focused on the short term and they're not thinking out the long term at all. I mean, even online, I remember how online was supposed to be this huge thing, and now all that's basically imploded. At least for like Comicsology and the the plans that Marvel and DC had to, you know. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. It's quietly gone. Yeah. Probably because they realized, yeah, digital's probably always going to be about ten percent of what we're doing. There's just People want these things in print. And for some reason, uh, th the merchandising departments really get it. The art direction of the merchandising departments understand clearly what appeals to the customer. You see these classic, iconic versions. Even if it's modern art, it's still the classic look of these characters. Um, they're not going to just put in every single thing that's uh, the, you know, at the whim of the comics and, and, and put that in there. I mean, back in the day, there used to be like that. There was that uproar with the image founders, a lot of them, particularly Todd McFarlane, where uh, they would be using and, and merchandising a lot of the art that was made for the comics specifically. And then taking that and putting it on a shirt, or doing this and that, whatever. And Todd's like, you know, they didn't even give me a shirt. You know, they just, just, he just went and did that. He's like, if they just gave me a shirt, I don't even think I ever would have been upset. You know, so it's that kind of thing where they were doing a lot of that, but because because the art was great and it was merchandisable, 
it was it was incredible. So they were like, hey, that's an awesome shot of uh, whatever character. Let's put that on a poster. Let's put that on a shirt. Let's put it on a puzzle. Let's, you know. So all these things were kind of running around uh, promoting the comic art that was in the books. Now it's it's turned into to the, the, they're kind of slicing pennies up, uh, which is funny because of the fact that especially, uh, well, you know, what? at this time, both companies are owned. They're, they're, they're subdivisions of multi-transnational mega conglomerate multi-billion dollar companies uh but yet like you'd think that they were operating on a shoestring indie budget with the way that they behave uh you're not really seeing the art from the books being turned into merch and it's not because they wouldn't have the money to make the merch or they don't have uh, the money to hire the talent it's because the quality of those books and of the art and of the characters being depicted it's not merchandisable so they'd rather go back to something Jose Luis Garcia Lopez did for DC or John Romita did for Spider-Man at Marvel. They'd rather go back to all that and put that on something because that'll sell uh, than instead of putting on something that's merchandisable, modern uh, in modern comics or the modern look of them or, or a certain character. Uh, it's And then throw in a bunch of other things that have treated... Uh, race, gender, sexuality, etc., as like a costume change half time for a character. It's like what I was talking about before when I was a kid, that these these were real, living, breathing individuals. They were who they were. I didn't want to mess with them. I wanted to continue. Like if I, when I was a kid and I was like, I'm going to work for whatever company one day, you know, these characters, that's the way they are. You know, I'll make my own characters and then they'll kind of be there uh, with them. And that was my naive thinking as a kid. But it was because, like, they were real people to me. It would it would be like, would you just decide to change the personality of your best friend? That's strange. Mm-hmm. Something something might be wrong with you if you went in there saying, you know, I can't wait till my best friend is completely different than how they are right now. I think then I would like them more. That doesn't make any sense. It would. Do you do you like them so much right now? Aren't aren't they your best friend because of who they are? Why would you want to change everything about them? And that makes you think you'd like them more or that other people would be accepting of them and like them more. Um, so that that kind of methodology of, of thinking as well in terms of like reboots and retcons and all these different things that happen with these characters in some in some drastic ways, uh, that loses people every time they do that. And, and, and once that trust is broken, it's broken. Um, so there's all these kinds of things, I think, too, where, where people still love comics. Some people, unfortunately, have gone away, and I think they might be uh, lost forever. And they've gone on to something else, because that's the other thing, too. There's so many more things to occupy your time with. But the people that do love comics, the medium, and love the fact that there's characters and stories and all these things that seem uh, fantastic and, 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 and not like anything you would just see in, in day-to-day life, I think that's what they're gravitating towards a lot of the time with these independent creations. These these independent creations that truly are all new and all different, uh, not just you know slapping another coat of paint on them and calling them uh, this character and then just put it out there. So uh, bless the readers because they're amazing. They're they're they've they've been fantastic. I, I can't say more than enough good things about the readers we've had at Alterna over the years. They've been so supportive and and really wonderful. Some of them really really wonderful people too. And uh, we greatly appreciate it. No, that that's great. I I 100% understand what you're saying there. You know, that's that was kind of that's how I feel about like Star Trek, Star Wars, Doctor Who. You know, when they want to make a character, I don't know if you follow Doctor Who if you're into that at all, but that's one that used to be one of my favorite. And it was like, well, we're gonna make 
you know, the doctor now woman. Everyone's like, oh, this is so wonderful. This is a progressive landmark. And I'm like, I guess it's nice, but like this is a defined, this is a character, you know, with with definitions. You know, this character can't just be anything. This is a character that has a history, a lore, a way of characterization. It's like, and if you just, there are certain aspects of a character or a story and you switch those out, it's no longer that character or story. And, and that, that seems like the mistake that uh, media, especially nerd culture, has just made over and over again the last 10 years. And, and uh, maybe we're to the point now people, you know, like I mentioned, the Spider-Man company, maybe we're to the point now that people are so desperate to make a living with these companies that they finally learned the lesson. I'm not sure. Uh, we'll, we've talked a lot about comics. I'm sure some people are probably tired. So I'll move, we'll move on a bit. But last question about comics for you. Here's here's a question that's being brought up. There are two large creators. I don't want to get you in the middle of any drama bomb, so I'm not going to name them. But there's this argument about indie comics and and how what the role of independent comics will be with indie comics when connected to influencers. So here's my question for you, Peter. Are we to expect a lot of uh, pretty crappy YouTuber comics? Is there like a lot of like low quality YouTuber comics in our future? And is that a good thing? Like, is that because it's like more people out there? But the other hand, I kind of get the feeling like, you know, you, you can't notice if it's not very good. You, you just have to like, no, this is the best thing I've ever read. And I, and I get it because it's like they have these communities and followings and I know how all this works. But on the other hand, it's a long time comic reader. I'm like, uh, I don't know. I'm mixed. I'm mixed on it. What, what is your opinion on Where are you? Um, I'm always of the mindset of the more the merrier. Uh, so I don't care if we have uh, whoever making them. I don't care if it's uh, someone at the grocery store, someone on YouTube, someone right out of school, someone in school. Uh, if you're making a comic, make your comic, get it out there. Um, and if people want to buy it, great. People can buy it. And if, if they want to talk about it, I hope they do talk about it. People need to talk about comics. Um, what What is good or not good, uh, I... I I think honestly, that's the determination of the the customer. So, what the customer, what the reader wants to read, what they want to think is good, uh, that's up to them. And like anything else, I, there's things I love that not that many people I know of love, and there's things that I know everyone likes and seems to enjoy. And I'm like, really, that that just doesn't doesn't seem good, you know? So. There's tons of things like that that I could think of in, in my life, whether it's comics, music, movies, books, whatever it is, food. Uh, there's tons of different things that, that I enjoy and maybe someone else doesn't and that I think is great, wonderful, perfect. And they go, really? That? Okay. You know? Um, so it's, it goes all over the place. Now, in terms of uh, people making them, whether they are on YouTube or not on YouTube or whatever it is, I think YouTube is, is is a powerful avenue in which to market, promote, get your stuff out there. I think there's a, a, not just a tremendous potential for it. I think that potential's already been seen and mm -hmm. realized. Um, I think the potential of YouTube in and of itself is is still hasn't fully been realized. I think there's a lot of people out there that could be even using that to completely topple the entire uh TV cable industry, uh, where that's a whole other conversation. Uh, maybe even the film industry in and of itself. I, I, it's it's such a powerful avenue, and other avenues that are like that too. But in terms of the comics being made and things like that, I, I think there are so many comics. If people really stop and think, there are so many comics that have been made over the past 
let's say even 50 years. Comics have been made for far longer than that, but we'll say 50. That are not good. Almost true. objectively not good. <laughs> Very true. Far more characters, far more stories in comics, in movies, in TV, and everything are just not good. Music, whatever it is, they're just not good. Um, they, they haven't stood the test of time. They never caught on. They never resonated with people, whatever it may be. Now, for every one of those that's not that good, there's at least one person out there that's like, what are you talking about? That's the best thing ever. No, okay, so tastes are subjective, so there's no accounting for taste. But in terms of the, the overall picture, if we kind of stand out and see, okay, look back and, and go, okay, that's the big, the big picture here. Let's judge by sales. Let's judge by uh, how long this character has been around and also the creators who made them. So you're judging by all those different factors and you look at it. There's a ton of things that have already been made that are out there that are just not good. So if people are going into it and they say, okay, let's broad brush this kind of person who does this sort of thing or looks this way or behaves this way, and they're going to create something good or something bad. Now, you see where I'm going with this? This, this sounds a lot like what we've been seeing across the board in other directions for a while now. I think we have to get away from the superficiality of judgment and we're never gonna. That's just part of human being. So it's just something that's fundamental we have to accept. Whenever stuff like this occurs, that's how it's gonna be. And the time will tell the tale. It always does. Uh, there's people, like I, I talked about Todd McFarlane, there's people with Todd McFarlane when he put his Spider-Man out for the first time. People within the industry, what the hell is this guy doing? How, this guy doesn't have bones. He can't bend. He can't bend like that. I don't care if he's Spider-Man and he's agile or whatever. It doesn't make any sense. This is the, the dumbest thing I ever seen. He's got this spaghetti webbing and this. What, what is this crap? Tons of people with that at that point in time. Same thing with like the Batman '89 movie. Tons of people hated that Michael Keaton movie before it came out. And then it came out. It's like, what, you get Mr. Mom to be Batman? What are you doing? You know, oh, it's going to be a stupid comedic take. You know, it's going to be goofy. And then people that were upset that it wasn't campy because they loved Batman 66. They loved the Adam West stuff. And I love both. Um, you know, so there's always been that kind of talk. I think if, if we kind of more have a frame of reference of just how things have been through history... And then go, okay, all of that's the way that is. Now, what matters here? Do I like it or do I not like it? What's my personal preference here? Do I enjoy what this person is putting out? Do I want to partake? And then you decide. And then that's it. Um, in terms of, uh, like, like, we should be glad right now we still have some semblance of freedom of choice on some things. And freedom, I think, could be identified as infinite choice. The more choice you get reduced, the more your freedom gets reduced. Now, of course, you can't have ultimate unlimited freedom because then that means freedom also of consequences. And then all of a sudden now you're imposing your freedom upon other people's freedom, which now all of a sudden turns into you don't have freedom anymore. So now all of a sudden, if you're imposing your freedom of choice on someone else's freedom of choice, you're now limiting their freedom. So let people read what they want to read, buy what they want to buy. If they want to pay a million dollars for a comic, if someone's out there and wants to do that, which they have, you know, Action Comics, number one, I think, sold for like a million something uh, at an auction or something like that, right? So someone somewhere will say, this is what it is worth to me. And if they have the money and want to pay for that, they'll do that. Uh, it doesn't matter that that book had 
five cents or 10 cents written on it. It's not worth five cents or 10 cents to that individual or to many other individuals. So talking about cost and value, that's a whole other kind of talk. But in terms of what people are making quality-wise, I think it takes time. It takes, uh, it takes people just attempting to get it out there for the first time. Now, if someone has leveraged an audience, there's a lot of different things to learn from it. If you have built an audience over the years, and now you're leveraging that audience to say, hey, I'm doing this, you could have done anything. Here's my new pasta sauce, everybody. Go check it out. It's on Indiegogo. Yeah, the, if the, you've pink, got a million... sauce, the pink sauce, if you remember that. Ugh. Yeah, so if you've got a million whatevers, subscribers, followers, et cetera, who really are into what you're doing, you have that audience before you, you could make the worst pasta sauce in the world. You're still going to sell more than the guy who doesn't have any audience and is making the greatest pasta sauce in the world. That's just kind of business 101. So if anything, people need to learn, you know what, what are they doing that I could learn from? And there's always something you can learn from with people. So if you think that the key to their success, you look at their comic and go, it's mediocre. I don't really like it. I don't think they're doing good, but it's selling like crazy. Well, you got to determine why are they selling like crazy? Are they selling like crazy because people just really like it and they, they think it is good? Or are they selling it like crazy because they're getting out there, they have a, a platform, whatever it may be, or are they doing the magic the magic number, uh, the magic equation, which is it's good and they've got a platform with a lot of people that are into what they're doing. Because then, wow, unstoppable. You know, and only a few things over the course of history of uh, companies, businesses, people have had that kind of, of magic, that kind of luck, uh, which is not luck. It's, it's hard work. So they've done that over the years. They've built up that audience. They've built up uh, their brand, their quality, whatever it is over the years. And then they've put a product out there, whether it's a comic, it's a, a T-shirt, it's a pasta sauce, it's a whatever. It doesn't matter. Um, it's the same thing. Tale as old as time, as far as this goes. If if you are looking at what someone is doing and you're you're wanting to learn their secrets of their success, you really have to just go as far as saying they're putting something out that they believe in, and they're putting something out and getting it in front of as many people as they possibly can. It's a numbers game, like anything else. And there's no reason to be jealous, upset, whatever it is by any of that. If anything, become inspired by that. That kind of stuff inspires me. Uh, so I think that the whatever's going on, it's, it's impossible to keep up with everything nowadays. Uh, I try not to keep up with most of it because uh, most of it comes and goes uh, as soon as, as you get into it and you start to go, okay, I'm going to learn about what, what the latest crazy thing is now. All of a sudden, it's like, oh, we, we're on to another crazy thing. That was two weeks ago. That was last week's crazy thing. Um, you know, so just keep doing what it is you're doing, put the nose to the grindstone, give more focus and attention to what you can do to build up what it is you're doing and what you want to achieve. And all of a sudden, before you know it, everybody gets to where they want to be a lot faster. And I think if, if we had more of that attitude, I think we would, uh, we would be doing the thing you talked about before. We would be continuing to grow, uh, whatever it is that we want to grow as opposed to maybe trying to either tear each other down or massage our own egos or, or cope with things as much as we can. And, and it's understandable. That's how people are. And, and, and I get it. There can be frustrations that arise or whatever it may be, but everyone is so talented. Everybody's out there is so hardworking. I don't care what it is. I don't care if someone thinks like, oh no, 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 that that's, that's not as good as this, or that's better than this, or that's, that shouldn't have the attention and the audience it has that, that conversation doesn't matter. Go into it and try to assess for yourself 
what can you do? What can you learn? And then what can you apply and then grow in that respect? I I like the optimism. I mean, you're a realist because you you are a business guy. You like you have done the get the work you've given the blood, sweat, and tears trying to make all this grow and work. So I take your insight uh, with uh, you know uh, very seriously. I like the optimism because we recently did this uh, episode with the Taylor Renz, and that was like all the negatives of the influencer system and make, relying on things to you know to kind of to be popular to move it forward. But there are positives to that. There are positives, and you can definitely see it with comics. And maybe you're right. You know, you feel it sounds like to me like you feel like as much as we've seen so far, we've only just started to see the potential of this uh, new system of comics, which that gives me hope. Because I do love comic books. I mean, it makes me so sad to watch. Just and it wasn't like it was a huge industry when I really started getting, you know, into reading comics. But just to watch it continue to shrink more and more, and you're like, how you you, you're beginning to ask yourself, can it get any smaller? Can it do that? And like, oh, it did. Look at that. And it's so growth. Any kind of growth, I'm really excited to see that. Uh, can we jump into cryptids? Can I talk a little bit about yeah, cryptids? Yeah, sure. Go for it. Cryptids. Let's do it. So, Cryptid King, by the way, is a really it's a fun book. I like it. Yeah, I, I call King Cryptid my seven foot two, four hundred pound baby. I I just love that kind of stuff. I love I love um, folklore. I love cryptids. I like I like ghosts. I like all that kind of stuff. That like weird stuff, you know. Oh These yeah, yeah. Guys in the twenties, they said they found an alien in the barn. I love it. I love all of it. Absolutely. So that's. Well, your books, those books always hit nice. They, they hit at night a nice spot for me. Why cryptids? It's such an interesting topic. It, it's like, why was that? How did that become like, I want to do a comic based on the New Jersey Devil? I mean, not that, I mean, that that's a cryptid, but you know what I mean. Yeah, so, I mean, cryptids, uh, essentially, they're just, they're, they're monsters. They're creatures. They're things that are unknown and undiscovered beings. Um, you know, in comics, they've been around for forever. We've had monsters all the time in comics and creatures and, 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 and humanoid beings that we can't quite classify. Uh, so cryptids in terms of King Cryptid, I'm not really touching upon a ton of cryptids that are already known and established, but I'm getting inspired by a lot of them that are there. And sometimes they're referenced as well. But it's not going to be like we have a checkbox and we're ticking off, okay, this one's about Bigfoot. This one's about the Jersey Devil. This one's got the Loch Ness Monster, you know. Um, but there'll be things that are inspired by those creatures. Like in the first issue, we do mention the Mothman, but the Mothman does not show up. We have the Behemoth. And the Behemoth is a, a, a man who was experimented on and given and mutated with the DNA of the Mothman. Uh, so we have a lot of different things that are taking place within the realm of King Cryptid. It takes place in our world, uh, focused right now in the New England region. And there is a, a, an organization by the name of the New England Cryptid Research Organization, which is a front for a front for a front that's a cover-up of another cover-up. There's many layers to this organization, but publicly they just look like an organization that is uh, researching cryptids. Uh, they're just, they've got a, a gift shop at the museum and, you know, they're very like, oh, yeah, you know, cryptids, we just kind of look into it and we just have history about people that have said that they've said, uh, seen things and whatever. Uh, but it's a very nefarious group. Now, as far as King Cryptid goes, King Cryptid is about 500 or so years old. He was betrayed and cursed a long time ago by his people and he was turned into this creature. 
and this creature that he was supposed to stay as what he was uh, was sort of looking like the way he looks now. He was a bit more snarly and twisted and feral and, and ravenous. Um, his humanity was trapped inside of him and he was powerless to do the things that he was doing, that this creature, almost on a demonic level, you could say, was kind of uh, in control of his body, would, would kill and consume anything in its path. Didn't matter, human, creature, animal, whatever. He was like that for about 100 years. He was supposed to be like that for Lord knows how long. Um, that was his punishment, his living nightmare. Uh, and that's what was done to this individual by the name of Crowan. That's all he remembers of his time as a human is his name, Crowan, K-R-O-W-A-N. He eventually comes upon this shaman by the name of Black Moon, and Black Moon recognizes him 100 or so years later, uh, that this must be the guy that everyone is always talking about, that the legends are about, that he's real. So he helps him. He actually gives him this this uh, cosmic moonstone, and this moonstone brings out his inner humanity. So it it kind of alleviates the curse. It doesn't cure it. But so what it does now is that King Cryptid is essentially controlled by the phases of the moon. So his powers augment. They they get greater when it's a full moon and when it's going towards the height of the full moon, and then they dissipate and they get down to their lowest weakest levels at the new moon. Now, if at the new moon he expels all of his power and does not get back in time to recharge, he has to go back to his cave layer and recharge in like this cosmic spring that kind of fuels the moonstone. Um, if he doesn't get back to the time, he goes and turns feral again until the moonlight restores him. So he doesn't want to go back to that because he remembers what it was like. He knew the whole time. Imagine being, uh, you can, you're aware of all the horrible things you're doing over a hundred years, but you're powerless to stop it. So it's like a living nightmare. Um, he doesn't want to go back and do that. So he, he makes sure that when it's a new moon, he kind of is really, oh, we're going to stay around the cave layer. I'm not going to get too crazy with it. Uh, so King Cryptid essentially has been doing that for a while. Now he helps a lot of different forms of life, human, uh, creature, animal, etc., over the course of 500 years. He's noticing, though, within the last 30 or so years that there's been a lot of things going on right under his nose that are horrible. And he's seeing a lot of it now come to a, a very, almost like accumulating into this, this very weird too much too soon kind of effect where he's seeing a lot of things around him that are very suspicious. There's a lot of stuff going on that just doesn't add up and there's just too much of it. So he's seeing all, all this stuff go on and he figures, okay, I have to do something about it. I have to be a little bit more proactive in terms of what's happening here because it's getting out of hand. And what he's seeing is, of course, the, the side effects or the very purposeful experiments of the New England Cryptid Research Organization. Now, he's not really fully aware of that just yet. Uh, we have the first four issues that are out. They kind of detail some of the things he's seeing. In issues five to nine, he's really going to get the full gist of what's occurring, especially by the end of issue nine. Um, issue nine is a really hard hitting issue for him. And he realizes that there, there's nothing is sacred to these people. They're, they're going to stop at nothing to, to do what they want to accomplish in terms of um, for what he knows and what he's thinking at this point is the experimentation and manipulation of human beings um, and the destruction of, of the earth. So he's kind of seeing that angle. What they're really uh, about, um, they're about 
far worse and they've been around for much longer, but he's not aware of that just yet. And some of the readers aren't aware of that just yet either. So I'm kind of teasing at some of that stuff. But there's a lot of issues here in terms of the story at play. There's a lot of characters. The series has a classic vibe to it where it's an ongoing episodic series. So every issue is self-contained. There's not story arcs or anything like that in terms of like, you know, a three or a four part or whatever it is. Uh, Issue one is a complete story. Issue two is a complete story and so on and so forth. Um, And they all connect. So there's a continuity between them. But they're not, there's not anything here where people are going to get into like issue 12 or 20 or something and go, I am totally lost. What is going on here? You know, who is this? Who is that? Everything is set up and, and explained and understood within each issue. It's very classic in that kind of style of storytelling. Uh, I wanted to feel, and I was really inspired a lot by, uh, ironically enough, I was inspired a lot by uh, TV shows. Um, and some of the classic comics as well, but I was inspired storytelling-wise by Batman the Animated Series, Thundercats. Um, there's a lot of shows like that. Uh, Transformers did a really great job, Generation 1, um, where you could just kind of turn on any episode at any point in time, and you get who's who. You get who's good, who's bad, what they're after, what they're about, what's going on. You know, when a new character is introduced and comes into play, uh, you get what what they're going through, what their situation is. And if they come back again later, you immediately recognize, okay, what, what kind of side is this character on? What are they after? What are they about? What's going on with them this time? So that'll be the fun is getting to like issue 25, 50, all these kinds of things where so much world and so many characters have been uh, put into play where I can kind of call upon anybody at any point in time throughout these issues and have them enter the fray and be a part of the story. And so far, the readers have been really receptive with the series. They've enjoyed it, and I'm so glad for it. Uh, I've been wanting to do this for a while. I I couldn't quite put my finger on what I wanted to do with the story. Um, I knew I wanted to tell an ongoing episodic story, and I knew I wanted to have something centering around creatures, monsters, that kind of a thing. And uh, Encrypted eventually just kind of popped into my head around 2018 or so, and uh, I literally wrote down the name, Kingcrypted. And I thought, okay, I'll, I'll have a sheet of character names and I'll, I'll write them down as they come to me. And, and no other character name ever came to me. It was King Cryptid. And every time I would go to the sheet and I'm like, okay, I got to put another name here. And I'm like, but King Cryptid sounds good. <laughs> and so coming up with King Cryptid, I came up with like the silhouette for him that the people would call him King Cryptid because his silhouette would be uh, this kingly shape. They would think that his cape, his, 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 his wings were a cape they would see them very, very, you know, uh, like like any other cryptid. You, they're always dark and blurry and, you know, they're very fleeting. You know, so you would see him and you would see kind of what looks like a crown. And then would, he has this, this shoulder piece of bone that looks like a, a big collar and a big winged cape thing. So it would look uh, kingly and you would call him, well, the king cryptid, even though that's not really his name. His name is Crowen. But to people, he's King Cryptid. The way Bigfoot is Bigfoot because he's got a big foot. He's got that big foot. He's got two, hopefully. Jeez, feel bad no, if he's he just, just got he the just, one. He just jumps on the one. He just right, he's just hopping on the one. Uh, <laughs> hey, who knows? Uh, you know, and then so all of these cryptids already kind of have like these comic book names uh, as it is. Uh, even Mothman. Mothman was inspired by the Adam West Batman series, that name. Because it was around the same time, and they, that that series was on everyone's mind, and they called the guy Mothman because of Batman and all the other kinds of characters running around. Yeah. Um, yeah. So 
it, it was it was a funny thing to to kind of come upon the series in that respect, but it feels like it it, it just feels like it's a good old fashioned comic book, and everything that's in there that I love about comics and the paranormal and the supernatural that's in the series. Do you have a favorite cryptid? Like uh, Mothman's obviously is your your pro tag, but I mean, do you have a particular one? You're from uh, the New England area. New England has a ton, has a ton of like little local monsters and legends. Yeah, I mean, they have like the Dover Demon from like 77 and, and, and no one knows exactly what that was. They think it still might have been some kind of escaped monkey or something. Um, they got Wood Devils. Uh, I love the Wendigo. Uh, I know there's a bunch of different Wendigo kinds of things, depending on what tribe you look into with Native American uh, mythology. But that's what I love, too, about about cryptids. I love the fact that there are so many of them, and they all have a very, sometimes very similar backstory and description, but they're all over the world. So you can have something that's being described in, like, Eastern Europe uh, that exists in, like, the middle of America, and you're like... I, is there something real going on here? Because these people wouldn't really have talked. So like, how does, how does this myth, how does this legend of these things get throughout every part of the world? You know, so whether it's real or not real or whatever it is, I think it's, it's definitely, uh, it says something about human beings and, and our imagination or our storytelling. Now, if they are real, I wish they could be, you never know. Um, man, that's a whole other can of worms. But it's funny to me with cryptids because uh, sometimes I'm tempted to say my favorite cryptid is the panda. Because at one <laughs> point in time, the panda was thought to be a cryptid, just like the uh, the mountain gorilla and the platypus yeah. and the kangaroo. And uh, there's several other creatures that were thought to be cryptids. And then, of course, when they're documented and discovered and they're not just a sound or a blur in the forest, um, they'd no longer become cryptids. But there's there's a whole bunch of creatures that we now know and take for granted as existing, and and at one point in time they were they were just thought as as mythical. Uh, aliens is another one that's that that is really interesting because now we have the the government at least seemingly that they're now saying that they think some of it's real or they don't have a good explanation for it, which is just wild. That's just so crazy to me. Yeah, I mean, I don't know if at this point in time they figure. Yeah, maybe we should start coming up with some kind of cover story for the trillions of dollars that we don't really explain. Where is it all going? Um, but in terms of uh, of that topic, man, that's a that's a wild topic, and that that goes back a long time. Um, it, aliens weren't invented in, in 1947 with the Roswell crash. Like, there's a lot of stuff going on with extraterrestrial life forms for a really long time and depending how far back you want to go you could even say uh maybe we're extraterrestrials maybe uh, i mean we're extraterrestrials to somebody <laughs> hell uh if there's other life out there which there probably is somewhere we're an extraterrestrial to them um so it really is about the perspective of that but in terms of like uh life crashing here or, or existing on here I don't know, man. Sometimes it seems like uh, like there's got to be. Like, it's just the odds are in its favor. I'm leaning towards yes. I am leaning towards yes. I, but maybe that's because I just want it to be true. I also think, I'm beginning to think also like ghosts, but to some extent that that's true also. That's kind of where I'm at on all that. Yeah, well, everything's energy and frequency, you know? So that's, that's all it is, is like, are we, like if we were radios, 
do we have the proper tuner to tune into the right frequency to pick up the right signal? You know, and in some ways we don't. There's things that we can't see. There's frequencies we can't hear, but they exist and they're there. And if you have the equipment to do so, you can see or hear those things. So who knows? Maybe at some points in, in uh, our waking consciousness or the in-between or maybe the different uh, brainwaves when we're asleep, maybe we do sense certain things and can hear or see or be aware of them. Uh, there's, there's a lot of people. That's another thing, like with the crypto thing. There's a hell of a lot of people that have said a lot of things with shared experiences in terms of what they're talking about that it's there's something going on. And I don't think all of it can be explained away right now. I think maybe one day we can explain all of it away. But even then, you know, anything metaphysical or magic to us right now, maybe in a hundred years, it's mundane. It's, it's, oh yeah, we know that. It's a, that's this and that and the other thing. And yeah, sure. You know, ghost spirits. Yeah, I know. That's, that's, we do that all the time. We can talk to the dead. Yeah. I just saw my aunt last Tuesday. <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, so who the hell knows? Because, uh, hell, if you go back 200 years from now and you show them your smartphone, they're probably going to burn you at the stake. <laughs> they're going to declare that you're some kind of a wizard, some kind of a witch, you know? So it's one of those things where the way that, that we, there's an arrogance, I think, to constant perpetual modern society where we think like we know all there is to know uh, the, right now. We know everything there is to know. And it's, it's, it, that's what everyone thinks when they're in that point of frame of reference. 200 years ago, we know everything there is to know right now. 500 years ago, we know everything there is to know right now. And yet, time and again, we can look back and say, no, they didn't know everything there was to know. You know so th there's a lot of things, I think, too, that we lost throughout history. I think there's a lot of, um, or too much, I should say, now of condemning uh, magic, the spirit things that we can't really explain away. I think we are turned off too much from it instead of trying to investigate it further to see, well, can we quantify those things? How can we do that? Um, instead of dismissing it and just saying, ah, oh, it's superstition and it's this and it's that and the other thing. Yeah, maybe some of it was, but there's things that, that they were doing thousands of years ago that we can't explain away how to do that today. And they did it like it was easy as anything. And if it wasn't easy, they wouldn't have done it. So it's one of those things where I think we become too dismissive. We become a little too arrogant. And there's a lot of stories about that, too, of what happens when civilizations become too arrogant. Um, we get brought down real quick and humbled. Uh, jackalopes. Do you know about jackalopes? Yes, I know about jackalopes. Yes. You know about jackalopes? Jackalopes, the, the wonderful creature of South Dakota and the upper i don't even know what you call it, upper midwest the plains states you know it's a cross chris my editor uh added a picture of a jackalope here a jackalope the glorious rabbit with antelope <laughs> probably the dumbest cryptid ever <laughs> the, the 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 patron saint cryptid of taxidermists everywhere the jackalope you should i, I you should think about adding some jackalopes to your books mix them in there somewhere I'll think about it. Put some antlers on someone else. Hey, you know? it's so funny. Um, there are so, you, so if out here, South Dakota tourists in the Black Hills. There's always a few people who put up signs, you know, offering to go jackalope hunting. I know at least one company that actually 
I I can't. I think it's like a like a sarcastic kind of like uh, ironic thing. Like I don't. There's no way those people actually think it's real. But I don't know. But I don't know. But it's so funny because there's usually like they'll see a couple signs. You know, go go this this little dinky company, and they'll take you out for an evening somewhere in the black. <laughs> go look for a weird looking rabbit. Yeah, cryptids are uh, they're they're a strange thing. You know, it's like a chicken or the egg scenario. Like that they exist because we've we've made them exist. I guess you could say almost everything is that scenario. Are, are we manifesting all these things to exist? I don't know. Yeah, you know, that's that's like a whole other conversation. But yeah, the jackalope is a is an interesting looking animal cryptid. That's for sure. It is. It it doesn't get in trouble. No one's claimed to marry. And then you know, no one's uh, claimed they married a jackalope or the jackalope is their secret lover or nothing fun like that. No one gets kidnapped by the jackalope. It's a law-abiding cryptid, that one. Stays yeah. in trouble. At the worst, I guess he's maybe tearing up a farm somewhere. <laughs> oh, oh, this has been fun. Very, um, It's been really great talking with you, Peter. Uh, you have some, uh, just hearing your insights on the comic book industry. And how all that works is fascinating because so many people talk a big game about it, but you are one of the people that's actually tried everything. You put your nose to that grindstone. And, you know, when I was watching videos for research for you, you know, the thing you say constantly to people who are interested in comics is like, you know, you just need to put the work in. Be humble, put the work in, and just keep trying. And that's awesome advice. That's, that's good advice for almost like any creative endeavor. So really glad you could be here, man. No problem. You know, and that's the thing is, is, don't look at like uh, the goal of making your comic is to save the industry or whatever nonsense that's about. Um, I, I hate when I hear people talking about, you know, oh, I'm going to save the industry. Just make as good of a comic as you possibly can. Um, that's a byproduct. If you save the industry, that's a byproduct of you making the best possible comic that you can, along with possibly and most likely hundreds of others making the best possible comic they possibly can. Uh, but that's the way that we can get anything good of any quality out there that anyone's going to remember. Um, give it your best effort. And if this one wasn't quite as good, make your next one even better and keep trying and, and really, really get out there. Learn as much as about your, your craft as you possibly can. Learn as much about the business as you possibly can. And be patient with yourself. Uh, I see a lot of people that are rushing into this kind of thing all the time. They've got some kind of bucket list or whatever they may have. And, um, Instead, just make it, you know, I'm going to get a panel done today. I'm going to get a page done today. I'm going to get that, you know, that two, three, four, five pages done today. And all of a sudden, before you know it, you've got a whole issue done. You've got a book done. Wow, look at that. Now you're going to get your book out there and put it out there. You know, so have dream big, but put your goals and make them small. Make them as small as you can. And, uh, and that's how you'll break them down. And then you can achieve what seems impossible at first. You can achieve it. Uh, and I think that's a really important thing to to take away from it. The ability will only take you so far. Hard work will take you even farther. Agree. Excellent. Uh, where can people find you online, Peter? They can find me on uh, Twitter because I refuse to call it X. Yeah, uh, me find too. me at Twitter at Peter Sametti. Uh, you can find uh, you can find us, of course, at alternacomics.com and get all of your great Alterna Comics uh, titles there. And uh, other than that, I'm also on Instagram, uh, Pete Simetti uh, Art, and then also on uh, YouTube. So youtube.com slash Peter Simetti. Great. Well, friends, thank you so much for taking the time to watch today. Uh, 
shout out to Bain Books Publishing and Young Voices who helped put the show together. Of course, my excellent editor, Chris Hollowick, you makes me look way more competent than I actually am. And to all of you for taking the time to view and support the show and channel. And so until next time, everyone, keep geeking out. <laughs>